The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in tech stocks. My guest is Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Yule, who oversees our tech coverage. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to talk a bit among ourselves about what's been happening in the market, and then we're going to take more audience questions than we typically have time for. We've got a few already, and we invite you to send in more questions as Alex and I talk. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. So, Alex, let's get started. How are you? I'm good, Lauren. How are you? Doing well. I want to start with the gyrations of the NASDAQ composite. The NASDAQ, which, as we know, is loaded with tech stocks, it looked for a short while like it was recovering from a sharp sell-off at the beginning of the year. Now, though, I'm not so sure. The index seems to be sinking again. Why are tech investors suddenly so fickle? What are they thinking here? Yeah, I mark the the sentiment in the NASDAQ now by our sort of every other week calls to know to know where we stand. It's kind of right. a, a useful exercise to look back at some of, uh, you know, uh, the timing and what we've said. And um, so the last time we spoke exactly two weeks ago, the NASDAQ had had this furious rally, right? It, it, it had soared a thousand points. It was up 8%. Right. Uh, after going into a bear market before that. Yes, after, exactly. So we talked then, and I think we wondered whether it was a bear market rally, if you will. Um, and it's looking like, you know, it might very well have been that um, sort of a relief rally, because in the last three days alone now, the Nasdaq is down now 5%. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's mostly that tech investors are back to worrying about these macro trends. I mean, we haven't had, it's not like we've had a, a set of earnings reports or anything truly fundamental in the last two weeks. Um, and so really what you can point to is the fact that yields are rising again, and specifically that the 10-year treasury kind of longer term rates um, are, are, are making these big moves. The 10-year treasury is now above 2.6%. And it wasn't that long ago when we were kind of looking at that 2% level as this magical threshold after which tech would be in trouble or kind of that point at which growth stocks never worked or would, would not work. Um, so now we're at 2.6%. Um, and I think investors are back to, to, to being worried. Maybe part of it um, is the fact that in the last few days, the 10-year has started to rise again, enough that it's we've gotten out of this inverted yield curve situation. So the two-year yield has fallen a little, the 10-year has moved back above it in terms of the rates. So we're out of that inversion. Um, and I, I think maybe, you know, that's probably good news for the economy because we know that this inverted yield curve where, where the two-year yield, the short-term yield is higher than the long-term yield can signal a recession. So we were only in that for a few days. Now we're out of it. Maybe that means the recession can be avoided. Good for the economy, but I think it brings us back to these just more general worries about growth stocks and uh, tech specifically. So that's it. 2.6 on the 10-year that's bad news for growth stocks. But trouble schmubble, Alex. Some 
smart investors are actually seeing good deals in tech. And you don't get much smarter than Elon Musk or Warren Buffett. Both of them made some interesting purchases in the past few weeks. Let's start with Buffett, since that's the freshest news. We just learned today that Berkshire Hathaway bought 11% of HP Inc. That's the old Hewlett Packard. What's going on here? What does Buffett see in HP? And what's the future? Yeah. And before we, I just having, hearing you say that, first of all, trouble schmuggle sounds like something maybe Elon Musk would, would tweet, but huh. hearing, hearing the two of those investors, if you, if you want to In call the same it, breath. Same breath is like kind of stunning, right? Um, it's just, I, I'm not sure you could come up with two different people. Um, I guess they are two of the richest, they are two of the richest people in the world, but personality wise, investing style wise, couldn't be more different. And so that's what makes, I, I kind of love when you get these sorts of um, storylines as, as, as a journalist, because there's just so much to sort of dig into there. But they're um, two very savvy investors. Yeah, well, we certainly know, we certainly know the track record for Warren Buffett. Uh, you know, I guess um, it's interesting whether you could think of Elon Musk as a savvy investor. I think that's going to be part of the debate now. We, we can talk more about that, but he's certainly a a, a genius and an amazing um, entrepreneur and innovator. Um, so, uh, but I think we're going to be talking more about how good an investor he is, but let's hold off on that. And I'll come back to your question. Sorry for the, for the, um, the digression back to Buffett. Back to Buffett. Um, so yes, this was fascinating. Last night, um, Berkshire Hathaway disclosed that it had uh, now had an 11% stake in HP Inc., which is the maker, uh, the computer maker. There's also HP Enterprise, which does more kind of networking enterprise services uh, businesses. They split apart kind of five, eight, eight years ago now at this point. So HP Inc. is essentially a pure play on PCs for consumers and for uh, for offices, as well as you know pr a printing business. Um, and so. You know, this is this is pretty interesting. Buffett, as as we know, is not a big tech person. It's also possible that it, that this investment came from his colleagues. But but either way, Berkshire Hathaway has not been known for its tech investments. Um, so it, so that's notable. HP is up sixteen percent on the news. Last I looked, it's the largest gain since twenty thirteen. Um, and I think you know, I think Buffett and Berkshire has really found something here. I will say that we have been. Kind of pounding the table at Barron's for HP for a while now. We can talk a little bit more about that. Right. But Eric Savitz, our colleague, has been very favorable toward it. I'd like to think that Warren Buffett read read some of his columns and, and that's where he got the idea. But, you know, you never know. No, I know um, you're right, Alex. <laughs> so, um, but what's so interesting about HP, I mean, it's, it's, it's very quietly had this revival, um, not just from the pandemic, but a lot of that has been pandemic driven. But the stock is up 105%. I was checking this before we came on over the last three years. So that's almost double the market. Um, and yet the stock is still super cheap. It trades for less than 10 times this year's earnings. So you kind of have like almost this momentum momentum tech stock that's dirt cheap. I, I don't, there aren't a lot of those. Um, Let me ask you a question. Lee, one of our loyal listeners, asks the question, do you think piggybacking war on onto Warren Buffett's pur purchase of HP is a good idea at today's price? Yeah. So, well, 16% move makes it a little bit less attractive than it was yesterday for sure. But I think given the valuations here, um, I think this seems like a very smart move, and I, and I can explain um, why. Um, you know, 
so there are a few things that are happening here. Um, first of all, you have a fairly newly bearish, uh, there's been some bearish commentary around HP just in the last week or so. Uh, it got downgraded by uh, Morgan Stanley last week to sell. That's pretty, you know, you don't see a ton of downgrades to sell that often. So it tells you that kind of some of that sentiment has come out of the stock. That often can mean future pops because, you know, not everyone is chasing the stock. I wonder so, how they feel about that now. That was that was my exact thought too. How does that analyst feel about downgrading a company to sell that less than a week later gets bought by the most important investor of all time? That's that must be something. That would be a good. Be That's a good, a good story. Uh, a good story. We'll work on that. Um, so, so okay. So you have the cheap stock, which works well and is important now for the reasons we talked about at the beginning of the show, which is that in a higher rate environment, these higher growth, expensive stocks simply won't work as well because future profits aren't worth quite as much. So you've got to find, you know, it's, it's, it's in some ways cheaper stocks um, with more current cash flows and profits become a little bit more valuable. So HP certainly fits the bill there. Um, it has had, it's, there's been this big rebound in PC sales, uh, largely pandemic driven, um, first from consumers for, who are working from home and, and students who are learning from learning from home, and now by companies kind of looking to revamp their systems as employees hopefully return to the office. So you have that kind of, um, that that's a tailwind. I think what's happened in the PC world, by the way, is, and, and this is a broader story or topic, but I think we've sort of had this realization that our rush to mobile, well, obviously mobile redefined everything and can't imagine our lives without mobile devices anymore. You know, the tech reviewers for years always said, oh, yes, but my iPad is great, but I can't do real work on it. And, and I don't, I, I think that got ignored for a long time. And I think when we got down to it during the pandemic, especially when people were trying to do real work from home, the iPad didn't cut it. And the iPad did pretty well during the pandemic too, right? There were good, strong tablet sales, but people realized that they needed to do real work and PCs, laptops, even desktops were still the way to do real work. So it's kind of been this return to almost normalcy. We've, we've gotten out of the mobile um, hype a little bit. So I think, and I don't think that's ready to be over. That's become the debate on Wall Street, right? Is the PC rebound over? If you think it's over, HP will struggle to some degree and so will Dell, which has also been getting some, uh, some negative attention from Wall Street. So, you know, I think that's the legitimate question as to how long the rebound lasts. But of course, you also still have the cheap stock to answer that, to push back on that problem. And then, you know, the other interesting thing for HP, and I I guess we don't know exactly the timing of the um, Buffett buy and when he was buying, but just it was last week that HP made this really interesting acquisition. They announced that they were buying Poly for $3.3 billion. Um, probably a lot of listeners are familiar with Poly if they think about the days when they were still sitting in conference rooms, that they make a lot of those um, kind of the video conferencing and, and teleconferencing equipment that you find um, in audio rooms. And um, well, HP is really anticipating the future in many ways. I, you know, I think now they are. And so this 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 poly thing is a real play on the future of work and, and how we're going to try to, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but how we're going to try to bridge these worlds of um, stay at home and back to work. And, and I don't know what you think, Lauren, but we've seen that just in the last few months that hybrid work is is now more of the norm and I think it will remain the norm. And so that means rethinking the equipment that you need and, and companies are still behind on this. There's a long tailwind for that, I think. And so 
it basically with HP, you have, you have both of those plays right now. And, and I think it's, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, Warren Buffett is certainly always interesting to watch. Absolutely. Would not sell his investment ideas short. Yeah. So let's move on to Elon Musk and his investment in Twitter. What does a futurist like Musk want with a sluggish company like Twitter? What's going on there? Another great story, right, Lauren? Um, just you know, so much to work with here in terms of Musk and Twitter. Um, it's a, it's a if we're to take Musk at his word, uh, and he's been fairly vocal on Twitter about Twitter. Most of his interest in the platform was its use. Simply, you know, it's a it's 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 use as a public square, and he's talked about himself as a free speech absolutist. He's obviously, I guess, at times been frustrated by his ability to freely express himself on the platform. Um, you know, although he does have 80 million followers, he is able to pretty much say what he wants, but he has, I think, seen other politicians that have that have been removed or have been, you know, filtered at times. And he seems to have a real issue with that. So this almost feels like a, um, a policy statement from the, you know, the world's richest man. And it's one that he can afford, right? So um, he has now a, a, a 10% stake in the company it's a like a sliver it's what like three billion dollars is a sliver of his of his wealth he can afford this the question is so for him i think we understand it um the real the question to me is what does this mean for the company its business and and its shareholders um so far investors are very excited um by the middle of this week twitter was up as much as 30 percent on on the news um it's come back a little Twitter is is the next version of Tesla. That's that's what investors are behaving like. That's a great question. Um, I, I I hope not, but I think um, my the sense that I can make of it in terms of how investors have responded is less about what Musk can do to fix the business and whether or not a he's going to eventually take it private himself or with a group of investors, or maybe he kind of sparks he puts. He's putting Twitter back into the discussion, the sale discussion, right? I mean, it was only a few months. It hasn't been that long that Jack Dorsey stepped down as CEO. There's a new CEO there. So this is a company that is, is very much in transition. And maybe this puts it over the edge, puts it back into play um, as an M&A candidate. Um, you know, in terms of but what he can do for the business, I, I don't think anything's changed at Twitter. It has the same problems it has two weeks ago and that it's had really since it went public, which is that... It's a, its attention has never resulted in in, in kind of um, uh, equal profit, equal profits, and and I don't know that Musk has a fix for that. I mean, um, his business model right now seems to just be not moderate, not doing anything to moderate content. I asked him in, in, in one of our newsletters this week whether free speech was now good business, and and I don't, I'd argue that. We can, we can argue about whether we what the free speech policies here, but I don't think free speech in this case is good business. Um, and if anything, we can look at the fact that the free speech and, uh, and Twitter's sort of content issues over the years and some of the more toxic stuff that's on the platform has actually done a lot to hurt the business. Um, I would, you know, just well, it's the paradox of social media companies it is. And I've said before, too, that I don't you know, social media is a tough business uh, for a very long time. Facebook became a behemoth and, and, and showed us how great social media can be from an advertising perspective. But we all know now even Facebook is struggling. I, I don't know that social media is going to in the end of 
looking back in 20, 30 years, will social media have been great business? I, I'm not so sure. Um, and, and just, you know, I just wanted to, on the, on the free speech issue, I think, and whether or not this puts Twitter back into play, Twitter's issue in terms of, it, it has long been a rumored buyout candidate. Uh, Disney was rumored to be interested. Salesforce was rumored to be interested. There have been others. Um, but just a few years ago, Bob Iger, the former CEO of Disney, actually said that Disney backed away from its merger with um, Twitter because of what he called nastiness. And that was his quote on the platform. So, you know, we, okay. can, debate, we can debate free speech, but free speech is often nasty, right? That, that's, the, that's the problem. Um, or right, the, and uh, Disney doesn't like nastiness. Well, and Disney, right now we know Disney has its own political right. uh, controversies. But I don't know, so I don't know who would be willing to take that on right now. Um, Musk, it, the, going private makes a lot of sense to me. You know, maybe Twitter can grow better outside of the spotlight or operate its business back out of the spotlight. But I would note that in joining the board, um, this week, Musk agreed to not accumulate more than a 15% stake, at least for a, a period of time. So that's well, not happening anytime soon. He's already had an enormous influence on the stock, no matter what he accumulated. But I yeah. have a question, same question I asked about, or, or that Lee asked about Warren Buffett and Hewlett Packard. Is Twitter a buy here? Should one piggyback on Musk's investment? So here's where I'm going to show my uh, colors, I guess. Uh, here I would say it is... It, this is one you should not piggyback on. Um, we've been actually quite bullish at Barron's on, on Twitter for a while. Um, we had a cover story on the company back in, uh, it was June of, of 2020. And we argued that the company was finally finding ways to sort of close this or, or would find ways to close this attention and valuate attention and valuation gap that they'd always, uh, you know, dealt with or, or attention and profit gap, I should say. Um, and so that was always sort of our view for why the stock was undervalued um, and that it had a much lower, like average revenue per users were half of what Facebook got. So there had to be a way to fix this. Someone was going to fix this, right? And that was our basic argument. The stock is up about 37% since then. Um, it's been back and forth. Much of the latest gains have just come this week from, from Musk. I think the gains are in the stock now. I, you know, I'm not sure the stock is going up for the right reasons, but it is going up. And I don't see, I just can't come up with a logical reason for why anything has really changed fundamentally at the business right now. That would make, you know, that would make, that would give you reason to buy right now. I just want to ask you, Alex, what is the business model? Is it advertising based? Well, that's a good question. Yes. I mean, it is definitely advertising based. They've tried all sorts of strategies to improve the way they sell ads, uh, whether it's, you know, mostly they're brand focused now. Um, and anyone who uses Twitter is familiar with the, the ads that you get in the feed. There's a lot of talk and, and perhaps this is one area where maybe Musk will have a different strategy of should Twitter for its very loyal subscriber base, of which it has 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 one, should it be more of a subscription, you know, paid model? Um, because it's shown that it cannot grow to billions of users the way Facebook has, for whatever reasons. Um, it's a more of a, it remains more of a, a niche a niche product. So um, very popular know, with journalists for sure. That's for sure. Very popular with journalists, financial types. You know, it has all of these sort of. Um, niche groups and that and, and for that reason it makes a um a subscription make sense and that would change the business and and so maybe there is reason there that um that it could make sense 
Well, it seems to me he came to promote free speech and what else he does will be worth watching. Yes. So let's move on to listener questions. We had quite a few of them going into the program and more now. We have a question from Maximilian. How do you feel about Roku's crash exiting the pandemic? That is, the stock has really underperformed since COVID has begun to wane. And do you see potential for a big comeback? Um, Roku's really interesting. It's one of those certainly stay-at-home darlings. Um, I'm just looking at the chart. In July of... um, Mid 2021, Roku was a $480 stock. Today, it's uh, like $118. Ouch. Um, so that's six, 75% of its value gone in less than a year. And um, that that hurts. I think, I think Roku has two issues, um, one of which we've talked a lot about, which is sort of just the end of the stay-at-home trade. It was obviously... Um, it was a big way to play the pandemic because people were staying at home more, they were watching more on TV and, and, and Roku was a way to play that, both the devices that it made that allowed you to stream and its advertising supported streaming channels. Uh, it, it made it made Roku a great, a great way to, to kind of play the pandemic, much like Peloton. Um, the, so the other problem though, is that there's this reckoning in streaming going on right now. Streaming is not the business and is not being seen as the great business it was um, a few years ago. It's actually something we put on the cover of Barron's a couple of weeks ago. And I think Roku falls into that problem, which is that investors are just not paying up for streaming the way they, they once did because they're now much more aware of all of the costs involved um, in constantly creating good content. So, um, you know, I will note that Wall Street is is very bullish on Roku's comeback. Um, like two thirds or 21 analysts rated at a buy. The average price target implies gains of 50 percent from here. Um, so but I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that Wall Street is right on this one. I mean, I, my worry is that, as we know, people want to leave the house right now. Um, and Roku's main strategy is to monetize streaming through through advertising. Uh, it has like free channels that that it will put ads on, um, and I don't I don't think there's much of an appetite for ads in our TV shows anymore. We've been reconditioned by Netflix um, to really yeah, not those ads. not really appreciate ads. I mean, I, I cannot watch a TV show with an ad anymore, even if it's a good show. I will turn Netflix it off. Super Bowl. Well, live TV is a different story for sure. You're right. Um, you know, I guess the one thing I could see for Roku in the in the kind of within TV in the streaming category is maybe it's a potential recession play, right? So if you're worried about um, the economy and people's budgets, if people start cutting these expensive subscription bundles, kind of the small, the, the less known ones like Paramount, Peacock, maybe even HBO Max, maybe they turn to Roku for its free ad-supported channels. I, you know, you could see that as being a um, a benefit for them. But, but I think that's a long way off and um, it's hard to really see any other catalyst right now. Well, a stock that's down 75% merits some investigation, whether yeah. it's a buy or not is another question. For sure. So let's move on. Jim asks, what are your thoughts about Microsoft? Yes, that's one of our favorite topics on Barron's Live, right? It sure um, is. So, um, you know, Microsoft has been caught up with most of tech and kind of this downdraft. Uh, it's down 10% this year, but I'm, uh, I was looking at it's still up about, it's up about 20% over the last 12 months. It's not cheap, but it's kind of where it's been. It trades at 32 times uh, this year's projected earnings. 
Uh, I like to compare Microsoft sometimes just to Apple because they're the two biggest tech names. So Apple has, has held in better. Um, it's down 3% year to date and up 35% over the last 12 months. Uh, I feel like Apple and Microsoft, you know, they, they both, they trade spots. They flip spots every once in a while in terms of, of, of which name is more in favor. I think in terms of big tech, you still can't go wrong with either of them. Um, and so, you know, maybe this is the time to be leaning a little bit more towards Microsoft just because it, it, it will inevitably seems to always catch up with Apple kind of, they, they each will, you know, they'll hit the three, they'll each hit the $3 trillion mark at some point would be my guess. And um, so I, I think maybe there's a little bit of a catch up play there. One thing I would say is it's probably worth watching. It's always worth watching the regulatory stuff with big tech. Microsoft, as we've talked about, has been totally insulated from, from that conversation. Uh, and, I, and I think that's most important because it's given them probably a little bit of additional space to innovate and, and, and push forward, right? I mean, we know they're, they're now trying to buy um, um, Activision Blizzard, right? So there's, um, they feel a little bit more free to run their business than I think the rest of big tech does. And that's been a good thing. That said, there's some indications that maybe now even Microsoft is falling into this tech regulatory conversation. Um, there's actually just a story from Politico that EU officials, EU commission officials have started to ask questions about Microsoft's cloud strategy, how they're selling it, how they're tying it and bundling it with other services. So that's worth watching. Um, if they kind of lose that edge, Microsoft becomes maybe a little bit less interesting, at least relative to the other tech names. But leaving Europe aside here, they have not seemed to be the target of regulators lately. No, it's true. Uh, I mean, Europe has been sort of the, the leading indicator on what's to come on the regulatory front. Um, so, you know, I think it stands to reason if they start to have more issues in Europe, then maybe that comes here as well. We'll keep an eye on it. So we have a bunch of questions about chip makers. Christopher asks for your outlook on NVIDIA, and Kerry wants to know about AMD and TSMC, that's Taiwan Semiconductor. Yeah, so um, I kind of think of these chip stocks, I guess, in a, you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't say that I'm an expert on every product that they're making um, and, and, and how to play kind of their quest for, for market share gains off of, of, of one another. Um, I think... I, I did. I was thinking more about Nvidia and AMD and Taiwan Semi kind of in relation to each other, um, and I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, if you wanted to buy one of those right now, which would it be? Um, and you know, there's a very clear distinction in how these have traded uh, over the last few years and where they trade at. Uh, multiple-wise, right? So NVIDIA is up about 400% over the last three years, and it trades at 42 times. It is a pricey stock, especially for a business that at the end of the day is still, you know, they are still making things. Yes, they've become much more of a software play, and they're driving software, and they're driving AI. So they kind of break out of that that hardware business in that sense. But I, I just, I don't really know how to put that value on the future of, of artificial intelligence. And so at 42 times, uh, and given the run it's had, I just I tend to be a little you know I, I I'm feel less comfortable with with a stock like that. Uh, AMD is kind of in the middle of of those in that it it's, uh, trades at about 25 times, and it's up a hel- still a healthy 252 percent over the last three years. So you know I feel like just from a valuation perspective, if you want to play the future of chips and you're not thinking that Intel is going to make a comeback, um, I think AMD is a good way to do it. 
And then you turn to Taiwan Semi, which is also up about 200%, and it's, it, and it's just cheap. Uh, it trades at 17 times. And what makes Taiwan Semiconductor very different from NVIDIA and AMD is they are actually fabricating, manufacturing chips um, for those guys in, in, in many cases, actually. Um, and that is just crucially important. And we've just learned how important, how much, how important that is during the pandemic and these supply chain issues and shortages. Um, and the better chips get, and the more advanced chips get, the more companies need Taiwan Semi, which basically has a near monopoly on on chip fabrication. Um, so why is the stock only seventeen times earnings? So I think um, I do think a big part of it is the geopolitical issues. Uh, I do, you know, Russia and Ukraine has, has, you know, certainly has upset the world order, and I think it's made folks more worried that there's the possibility that um, China takes a more aggressive stance in Taiwan. And if they do, then what happens to Taiwan Semi? That's a, that is a real question. So that's a big risk. I, it's, mm -hmm. I don't know how much of the- Existential much, perhaps. Yeah, so I don't know how much of that risk gets factored into the multiple, but I, you know, multiple stock multiples are, psych, psych, are kind of psychology at the end of the day. And I, I think there's a lot of that in there. Um, there's probably also worries that we've had sort of a, Overbill, there'll be maybe there'll be an inventory overhang coming out of the supply chain crisis, um, and and so that could hurt TSM. Uh, you know, the even cheaper way to play this is Intel, which we've talked about too, because uh, Intel also is the other company that can, other big company that can really build its own chips. So, how about Micron? That's that's another company many people ask about. Yeah, so that is another. Um, we had a, a column on Micron this weekend. So if you really want to find a cheap way to play chips, Micron Micron is it, right? Um, they are specifically a maker of, of memory, um, which is kind of often for a long time been sort of this commodity business where you just put memory inside every device um, from you know, simple simple electronics to the fancier flash memory that goes that, that has become storage inside mobile devices and laptops. But, but what Eric Savitz, who wrote this column this past weekend, points out is that the more advanced everything gets um, from game consoles to smartphones to especially cars, the more we need memory kind of next to the more sophisticated processing chips. And Micron's just not getting any credit for that, right? I mean, it is, it is even cheaper than... Um, it's one of the cheapest stocks in the stock market. I'm trying to just pull up where it trades right now. Um, Eric had some good comparisons. So Micron trades for six and a half times 2023 profits. If you look at even others in the chip space, he compares it to Qualcomm. So uh, so Micron six and a half times, Qualcomm's at 12 times, Intel's at 13 times, AMD is at 23 times, and NVIDIA is at 40 times. Um, and by the way, Micron's revenue is just about even with NVIDIA's, um, even though it has like an eighth of the market value. So Micron may be, it, it, it kind of brings us back to HP and finding the cheapest of, of tech. I mean, Micron is definitely up there. Um, you know, I, I would have been um, probably no more surprised if Buffett had announced a stake in Micron instead of HP. Like they both fit a lot of the same trends. And, and Give him time, Alex. He's got a lot of money. Yeah. So maybe that maybe that's next one. I don't know. <laughs> That is fascinating. So Lee has another question with the Fed poised to start 
raising interest rates materially, and I and I'll add with plans to trim their balance sheet as well. Do you think it's a smart idea to buy tech at current levels? It seems that the market hasn't really corrected enough. He argues to consider tech a real buy. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, you have sort of like these very you have you have the biggest of tech, which kind of feels like needs to be, they're almost too big for, for interest rate concerns. Yes, at the margins, the stocks are going to get hurt um, as we have these, these sell-offs around uh, economic or macro situations. But I don't think you should be buying or selling these big tech companies um, based on what, what yields are doing. The middle, the middle stuff, I mean, the names more, you know, the cloud names, the names that we talked about, like NVIDIA and AMD, although NVIDIA is arguably the biggest of tech now, but they feel more more like trading stocks to some degree. And I think there is reason to be more nervous there. And then you get to the, the kind of value, value tech that we just talked about. Um, and I think they potentially benefit in this world. Uh, rising yields aren't going to do much to change our need for tech. I guess, you know, a potential recession could weigh on, on demand. Um, but in a lot of ways, tech is, is recession resilient because it makes us more efficient and helps companies cut costs. So right. right. It's, a, think, it's a profit um, margin expander. I think so. And so I think, I think kind of cheap tech does look very interesting right now. You know, it's not as sexy. Um, HP is not that sexy and Micron is not that sexy, but they do seem like they fit um, the right categories right now. And I think that's probably a good place for tech investors to be focused. Okay, we're going to leave it there today, Alex. Thank you so much. We covered sure. a lot of ground there. Yeah, absolutely. Good so to talk. Maybe, maybe Mr. Buffett is listening in and we'll consider Micron next. We'll see. Anyway, thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. Thanks for your great questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Mansion Global and Redfin experts will talk about the strategies home buyers can use to beat out the competition in a hot housing market. That should be an excellent call. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.